live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey everybody, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, hold the phone. Normally, this is when I ask you to donate to America's Talk radio show about opera. And of course, you still can. That's not what I'm telling you today. Thanks so much for all of those emails that came flooding in about where was Monday's show on the podcast format earlier this week. Well, the boys and I were looking ahead to Memorial Day weekend. We know that we weren't going to do a show on Monday, May 27, and so we're splitting the distance with a little micro-release on, yes, a Friday of all days. We're kind of hedging our bets between last Monday's show and our post-Memorial Day weekend show coming up on June 3rd. A little micro-episode here, just a quick, dirty 20 minutes with Weston, Tobias, and Matt on Santa Fe Opera's new initiative. I'm going to throw it over to them in the studio. I'm joined in the studio by uh, Matt Cummings. That's true. You heard it here first, everyone. I'm back. He's back. Where were you? Uh, various gigs and traveling around uh, the Midwest and Chicago. It's been a while. Look at that big shot go. I know. Yeah. And Tobias Wright, where have you been? In Matt's room waiting for him to return. <laughs> <laughs> very true I, and I very think accurate. Actually, I took last week off. I don't, I don't remember why. I think mm-hmm. I got kicked off the show. Yeah, we we, we just we, we're we didn't airing a lot of dirty laundry in this opening <laughs> segment tonight. Uh, speaking of dirty laundry, potentially, did anyone see that Game of Thrones finale? No spoilers. No spoilers, please. There are no spoilers, but someone died who I was really pleased to see die. It, Ooh. It's like the end of an <laughs> but era. That's though. like that's like the vaguest of all vague things I for know, Game of Thrones. But like, talk about Monday morning quarterback. People have been like Monday morning show running this whole season. <laughs> oh my god, it's so true. <laughs> And uh, th- there were numerous thing pieces published today about how, like, maybe Game of Thrones was the last uh, TV show that people were all going to watch together, mm. since people don't really watch TV on TV anymore. I mean, they watch it on eight. It'll happen again. Yeah. Well, I don't you know. know. We can replace it with a podcast that everyone listens to together, like, say, Opera Box School. Let's go. I think that's a good idea. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box School. Santa Fe Opera has always been known for doing things a little bit differently from its sort of uh, open-air seating to uh, its opera selection, and this upcoming season is not an exception to that rule. The main highlights are a trio of three new operas that each bring a different aspect of contemporary opera to Santa Fe's opera audiences. And, uh, boys, do you want to talk about a couple of them? So before we go any further, they, they announced all three operas. In, in their current press release, but they're rolling them out one per year. One per year. Yes. It's not just for this. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is honestly really good PR because you're ta- we're already talking about all three, and then next year yeah. we'll be talking about the two that are coming up, and then the year after that we're going to be like, ooh, what's going on with that next one? It's going to be so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> but the one that's premiering this year is uh, The 13th Child by Paul Ruders, uh, the Danish composer uh, who's probably best known if you're a, if you're a modern opera buff uh, for his Handmaid's Tale opera. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so they, they're describing this very much as a as a, a fairy tale opera, but like fairy, not Disney fairy tale, Grim, Brothers Grimm fairy tale, where there is going to be darkness, there is going to be adventure, there is a, a princess who is going on a quest to find her long-lost brothers. And uh, Ruders talks about the opera as... Uh, by saying, as opposed to The Handmaid's Tale, which is an opera for grown-ups, I would say that The Thirteenth Child is good for all ages, including children. 
who I hope will find it kind of scary. If not, I haven't done my job very well. I think if you can sit through a Harry Potter movie and enjoy it and not have to leave the bedroom light on at night, you'll love this. What a good benchmark for uh, determining whether or not your kids are okay to see, see this opera. It's it's such an interesting way for a composer to talk about his opera. Mm, the, yeah. Like the composer is highlighting the the dramaturgical aspects, the of psychological the opera. A- yeah, impact like even more. Not once in that in that sentence in that quote did he talk about the music of his opera, which I'm sure is going to be stunning. But that's really that that's not their focus, and I think that that is part of how they're trying to reposition this opera to appeal to audiences of all ages. Because in, instead of just like casting opera as this one medium that it like as a framework for music, it is mm-hmm. like it's a medium that should be up there with theater and movies well also too I, I, there are so many fairy tales and there are so many uh fantasy worlds that we go to in opera and that's part of the suspension of belief but like yeah. i none of them are ever actually scary do you know what i mean like mephistopheles should be menacing and and like scary but it's not it's it's, it's a it's an old it's an old guy with a with a low voice laughing yeah. at it, <laughs> yeah. you know yeah, so it's kind of cool. I look forward to seeing that unfold and and actually having a, a little bit of a psychological thriller going on with it. I am very interested uh, in the fact that they're sort of playing up almost the uh, uh, the childish nature of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ruders is not a composer whom I associate with children's music in the slightest. Uh, he's very much, uh, he, he feels very sort of old guard, uh, 20th century like avant-garde. Who, like, who does he remind you? Of music, uh, uh, mm, kind of like a leg- like a legati, but maybe a little okay, more so, melodic, you know. Yeah, but 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 kind of avant garde. Definitely yeah. not not a lot to hold on to necessarily. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean that he's not going to change his idiom for this work. I mean, certainly it's music that lends itself to that sort of you know uh, cinematic spookiness. I mean, I'm, there's a reason Kubrick loved that kind of uh, music. But uh, I, I think it's interesting that he's sort of the child-friendly one on this list, you know? And also, like, speaking of Game of Thrones, maybe it's just because the main character in this opera is named Princess Lyra, which has um, three out of four letters in common with Arya Stark, but I'm just picturing Daisy Williams. That is a... Like, going on a quest. She has a long... (laughs) <laughs> Long connection you made there. Well, but if you miss Game of Thrones, you can just go to Santa Fe. Yeah, no, and still no spoilers, still no Game of Thrones spoilers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think that that does speak to the to the desire among opera audiences, especially among younger opera audiences, mm-hmm. to have works that don't ne- that don't just have damsels damsels in distress. Yes, and I think that it's, oh, absolutely. And I think that it's growing directly out of media like Game of Thrones, where even though it's very firmly set in a patriarchal, mm-hmm. male dominated society. Um, occasionally the, to the detriment of the show people have criticized <laughs> yeah. um you have these strong female characters and i think and and more nuanced female characters than you've had in a lot of other previous like compare game of thrones to lord of the rings where you just have like some pretty cipher standing around reading this you act I'm, like i've seen lord of the rings okay but like the audience probably has <laughs> wait Everyone wait, has wait. Seen. hold everything have you not seen hold lord on, of let the me, you know we'll, we'll talk about this we only have time. 53 minutes left <laughs> Weston. <laughs> let me tell you all the things i've not seen because it's a long list. Well, I but I just see this opera like de- growing out of that thirst for female protagonists instead mm-hmm. of like female decoration uh, or like female set dressing. Yeah, uh, yeah. A- and I I hope that the opera comes through as much as the marketing seems to be, you know, spinning that because that is a positive development for the art form. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Uh, opera number two, you want to take it away, Toby? Yeah, so the second opera is M. Butterfly by Hong Ro and the libretto by David Henry Huang, who actually wrote the original play, M. Butterfly, um, in the late 80s, um, and it was adapted for Broadway. It was a, a theater play. And so what I think is really fantastic about this um, is that just M. Butterfly right away piques your interest because you're like, you mean Madame Butterfly? And so many people are going to have interest in this because they're going to want to have a comparison piece to the Puccini opera. Mm. You're smirking at me, Matt. No, I think that, that, I think that that's an, an, a, that it's a, it's a parallel that creates a lot of opportunity to like draw in interested audiences. And yeah, I, I think this is also um, uh, one of those one of those things where there's an opportunity here to kind of, uh, shall we say, correct some of the more problematic elements of Madame well, Butterfly. Yes and no. I mean, it's so it's they they are the Madame Butterfly that we know as Puccini, and then the M Butterfly here um, by Ro and Huang, like. They're based on the same play, but they are not the same story. Right. So we know Madame Butterfly as Pinkerton and Chocho San and, you know, 999 year lease. And it's just horrible and it's womanizing and it's it's awful and it's cultural appropriation. Whereas this story, um, it, it's actually so the original play like is Rene uh, Gallimard, a civil servant attached to the French embassy in China, falls in love with a beautiful Chinese opera oh, singer. In, in China, not Japan. Yes. Oh, OK. Yes. Um also, Puccini never went to Japan. Did we ever talk? Have we ever talked about that? Puccini, I don't think go Puccini to ever went everywhere. Yeah, anywhere. no, it's horrible. <laughs> anyway, um, falls in love with a beautiful Chinese opera singer, Song Liling, and and what's interesting there is he has this twenty-year affair and ends up being tried for treason, and never knew until the very end that the love of his life, this perfect ideal, idealistic woman, was a man the whole time because he's unaware hmm. that in Chinese opera the female leads are played by men, um, and so. I think that this story in particular, this adaptation, this M Butterfly, is going to really captivate an audience, uh, an audience's interest, especially at Santa Fe, where there's such a well-educated audience anyway. Um, that I think that the comparison alone is going to be an awesome contrast to the story that we know and and pique a lot of interest. And then other. The other aspect is our friend of the show, Hong Ro. Um, oh yes, friend of the show, friend of the show. Uh, he's already established himself with Santa Fe, um, so people there's already been success there um, with Dr. Sun Yat-sen, um, which he wrote for them a couple of years ago. It was commissioned by them as well. So there's already that credibility in which they know that they have a composer that they like, um, and so I don't know. To me, it's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something that resonates with. Uh, like theater and and musical culture about this kind of story, and I think that that's because at its heart, it like all of these stories from the original Madame Butterfly and the mm -hmm. opera Madame Butterfly and M Butterfly, and like if you really want to throw Miss Saigon in the mix, you can do that one too. Let's then not. One's got its own problems. <laughs> uh, like why does Saigon never sleep at night? But I'd say like at their heart, there are stories about like lack of lack of mutual cultural understanding, right? Yeah, and that is something that resonates. Uh, to people of all cultures mm -hmm. who have interacted with another culture. One of the things that uh, um, uh, Huang Ro has talked about with this, uh, this uh, M. Butterfly uh, is that he's going to incorporate a lot of Chinese opera elements mm -hmm. into the score, which will be very unfamiliar, I think, to Western audiences. And I, I, I'm fascinated by Chinese opera because it, it's, it's not the same 
uh, sort of genre as Western opera, but it's it's very much in parallel in many ways. But at the same time, it's so different in how it's to presented hear, in the vocal style. Yeah, and, and what he says is that he's, he's inverted a Puccini overture to make it sound like it's Chinese opera. And I, I whatever that means... I want to hear it. I, I do really want to hear it. I, I love I love Huang Rou's uh, composition. Uh, it, it's it, it should be mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, we also have another friend of the show, I believe, associated with the production, um, Justin Kim. Uh, if you remember him, the countertenor, uh, he performed in Chicago uh, not too long ago uh, uh, with the Monteverdi 450 uh, Festival. I think that was uh, yeah. He was he played he was Neroni and Popeye and yeah. made uh, quite an impression. It was phenomenal on everyone. Um, but just to kind of get you excited, uh, we're going to play you a little bit of him singing from Handel's Cersei, Si Bramate Diamar Ki Vistgen. Handel's Cersei Lannister. (laughs) That's enough out of you. Good Lord. All right, let's just listen to it, okay? You are listening to Opera Box Score live on WNUR 89.3 FM in HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. We just listened to a little bit of Justin Kim as sort of a preview, uh, singing something completely unlike his role, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't that doesn't scream <laughs> that, Chinese opera to me. That does not scream M Butterfly. I, I'll say that like I was I went to school with Justin Kim and he from the from the time he was really only probably like 20 or 21. Guy's got star quality. Like, oh, yeah. You really you see does. it and <laughs> you see it still coming through in spades, but like that has been there for years. You should you need to check years. out one of the cool things about to just to <laughs> tail off that, when someone has star quality, what does that mean? And to me it had it's talent, it's preparation, but the most from everything I've ever seen in Justin Kim, it's he loves to perform. Like mm-hmm. he wants to own the performance and that's pretty spectacular. You need to check out his uh YouTube channel. It's 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 a lot of fun. And I'm very excited. Uh I'm I mean, I probably won't be able to, but but if someone throws a lot of money our way, you can donate on our website. Maybe I can go and see this production when it comes out. I'm very excited for it. You'll, well, you've got at least a year, so just <laughs> I'll save up my out. funds. Uh, I, I spent all my money on a piano yesterday, so sweet. You know, you know, that's where I am right now. Well, let's talk a little bit about opera number three. This one is The Lord of Cries with a libretto by Mark Adamo and uh, the music by Dun 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 John Corgliano. 
who hasn't been seen on opera stages since uh, the Ghosts of Versailles, which is nuts to me because uh, I, I feel like for a certain generation, Ghosts of Versailles was like the contemporary mm-hmm. opera. You know yeah. what I mean? And uh, I, I was, I was. It's a it's a weirdly big name to have so few operas yeah. attached to it. Well, to have exactly one opera right, attached right, to it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I think it's uh, it's also a really sort of smart way. If you look at you know, uh, if you look at you know, Reuters, you've got Huang Ro, uh, and even you know the the librettist Adamo and uh, Huang. Um, the, these are all really heavy hitters in twenty first mm-hmm. century opera. There are no unknowns on this list, but they're also just outside the bubble of you know of you know household names I, that's not quite I, the right I, term. i'd say that that's not quite true of mark adamo but he's not running the music for this one exactly, no he's only yes. acting as librettist um and i think that this husband. is a uh, for his husband and uh, and it's a very well but i actually do think you know the the pairing of adamo um and Crigliano, like it's kind of interesting to me because they both write really distinctly yes. for the voice, and to, successfully, I should add. But uh, in collaboration together on an opera of this scale, I I'm personally looking forward because what I think is going to happen there is that's going to be what the voice is capable of in American opera. Like yeah. that, yeah. It, this could potentially be that type of defining piece with those two particular composers working together. And scale is what stood out to me too, because yeah. Ghost of Versailles, even though it has a lot of music that I think is really fantastic, it kind of is overstuffed because it was commissioned for the Metropolitan Opera <laughs> and it was commissioned to make a big splash, like specifically to make a big splash at the Metropolitan Opera. Mm-hmm. So like everything in the kitchen sink goes into that opera and then who can do it? Not, no. not so many, only the Metropolitan Opera and LA Opera and like these really top flight companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really fascinated to hear what this music is going to sound like because my only frame of reference, because I only listen to operas and none of you know all the other stuff, uh, is Ghosts of Versailles. So I'd be interested to see, usually with, with composers l- like this, um, of this statue that you know the names of, you have some sense of what they're going to sound like. Reuters, I have, I, I'm a little bit less because, uh, just because as we discussed, mm-hmm. I've never heard him compose something that's quote-unquote kid-friendly. Um, but at the same time, I feel like I know what the timbres are going to be. I know yeah. kind of what the arc is going to feel like. And same with Huang Ro. But you, you're, to your point here, you're totally right with what you said earlier. There's a 30-year gap. Yeah, yeah. this is a big opus. gap. It really feels like some guy like called in from retirement for one last job. You know, he's, 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 <laughs> this is I'm his really excited death. about it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but seriously, I was just actually thinking about yeah. Verdi in my head. I'm like, opera's 30 years apart that Verdi wrote. Yeah, and I it's mean, gonna be it, it's gonna be interesting too because this this feels like a very uh, based again purely on just Ghosts of Versailles. Feels like a very Corgliano sort of story. So this is actually gonna be sort of a. Uh, uh, a melding together of two stories, the Bacche by Euripides, which I haven't read because I'm uncultured and from Alabama, uh, and Dracula uh, <laughs> by Bram Stoker, which I have read because I'm uncultured and was born in the 19th century. Um, and uh, Or at least your spirit was. <laughs> my spirit was. Um, it's, it, it, so it's, it's really co- sort of comparing, uh, according to, according to uh, uh, the, uh, the authors, uh, Corigliano and Damo, um, it, both pieces... Um, are all about 
honoring the animal nature of humans, uh, quote, lest it turn monstrous and destroy us. Um, and apparently it's going to begin with a sort of a, a, a god returning to Earth, like Corleana returning to the opera stage, to offer a mortal three chances. I don't chances. know if that was in his mind. But. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> it was a self-insert character. Um, uh, and, and then they talk to Dracula, and it sounds kind of bizarre, but it sounds like exactly the kind of opera that Corleano um, wants to write. Yeah, I mean, like, both mythology and, like, gothic literature adapt really well to opera because they're so over the top. Mm. Uh, and 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 they're so, like, internal that the amount of actual stuff that happens is mm. kept to an amount that is often uh, compatible with opera libretti. Uh, and just, like, based on when it's set and who's working on it and, like, what they kind of are hinting at in these press materials, I have a feeling that there's going to be some, like... Oscar Wilde kind of things that are going on in this yep. opera, and I hope I like really hope that they lean into that kind of like sexual subversion as well, like to ju- to kind of bring they to, like kind of bring to the <laughs> surface everything that so many operas and plays and paintings are, have been about for millennia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and it, I think overall, I think the big takeaway from these three new operas is that. Uh, there are three really heavy hitters in the opera world, um, three very exciting composers who all seem really enthusiastic about what they're about to put out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the new works are all going to be uh, shorter than a standard opera in order to be more accessible to younger audiences, but it's also uh, uh, fairly diverse in terms of uh, content. We have you know, sort of the, uh, the feminist angle in the first one. We have the uh, different cultures in uh, Huang Rose. And then uh, Corleano's is just pure kind of... Uh, mid 20th century opera zaniness from based on what I've read about it. Again, these haven't come out yet, so we can't make a final judgment. But I, I think it's a really strong decision on half on behalf of the Santa Fe Opera to put these three operas out there. And I think it's uh, a model that I'd love more companies to uh, imitate I, yeah, in the future. Yeah, I think it shows that they're paying attention and it shows that they're listening to what mm-hmm. people are what what people are indicating about how they feel about what's going on like what how what business as usual is doing it's not yeah. serving the needs of the younger generation i agree and that's kind of it's it's a beautiful way for them to continue their trajectory upward which like they're already firmly established as one of the best you know festivals that exist in the world if but not the best i mean yeah, it's honestly it's yeah. like one of the three best probably yep. <laughs> All right, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera over the grill at your next barbecue. Again, we're off on Monday, May 27th for Memorial Day, but we're back Monday, June 3rd, 9 p.m. Central. More opera, more hot takes, more music. What more could you want? Join us then. This is WNUR-FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment. <laughs>